Hi, everyone. This is Scott Takeda of Hulu's The First, and you are listening to Inside Your Head. Welcome to Inside Your Head. This is Nasty Neal, and I'm joined by Kirk Boville, who plays Henry Kissinger in Vice, which is opening later this month. How you doing? Good, man. How you doing? Excellent. Excellent. So, so how did you get the role of Henry Kissinger? You know, it was uh, just through the, you know, the audition process. And um, the, I always thought was interesting about it was when I got it, you know, I mean, he has such a unique, distinct voice, right? And, right. Um, but I've always been, I mean, I've always gotten hired to do a ton of different dialects. I, was, I knew I could do it. And, but the thing that was kind of wild was I was preparing for the audition. And I got called in to go do uh, like a lift commercial playing like an 1800s kind of like wagon train driver. So like uh-huh. polar opposite, right? Uh-huh. And, and it was going to land on top of the day I was doing the um, Kissinger audition. So I, I, uh, I just called up my agent. I said, man, I, I, obviously I don't want to miss the, the Kissinger deal. I want to go in there and do this. I want to read for that. But I also don't want to turn down a paid job. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. were able to they were able to um, get it moved around for me. And so here I was one day, literally, I mean, looking like right out of the freaking like something would be in Deadwood. Um, <laughs> and and then the next day I uh, cleaned up and um, and I went to that audition. And the thing that was so funny about it was. I walk in and I'm talking to like, I'm talking to th- those people. And it was like, you know, over in, you know, Francine Mazler's casting office. And they said, you know, uh, any questions? I said, no, nah, you mind if I just put on these glasses? I had some black cornroom glasses. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, he's got the accent. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then the moment we started, I dropped right into Kissinger. And yeah. I know it shocked them because the way they looked at me, you know, the reaction was like, because I'm talking to you like I'm talking. <laughs> and then I go, okay. And I go, yeah, I know. And then as soon as we hit it, I dropped right into Kissinger. And um, so I read for it. And I really thought deep down that they're going to go get like a cameo. They'll go get like Christopher Waltz or somebody. You know, they'll go get some German guy. They'll get like Christopher Waltz. That's what I figured they would get and have him come in because they were filling out roles like that. You know, you know, you got Tyler Perry playing Colin Powell. You got Lisa Gay Hamilton playing Condoleezza Rice. You had Bill Pullman coming in playing Rockefeller. I mean, it goes down the list on and on, not counting the big giant A-list, just huge guys, right? Mm-hmm. And so I figured, uh, you know, I kind of, I did it, and I just forgot about it. And I went, yeah, okay. They liked it, but, you know, they're going to go get some A-list guys. And maybe a month later, five weeks later, I'm getting a call from the agent, and they're talking about a booking, and it never registered in my mind because they were, when they said the, the name of the movie, I was expected to call to be about that I had booked uh, the TV show The Mick because I was on hold for that. And I said, what? I said, I said, what, you talk about The Mick? She goes, no, no, you booked that too. We're, we're going to talk about that later. She goes, you booked Vice. I'm wow. like, holy crap. Holy crap. Then it, I just, you know, because I had forgot. I went, yeah. And I'm running down the hallway to Joni, my wife. I'm going, holy smokes. <laughs> and, and man. It was a good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh so, man. Yeah. So how do you get um for for the accent? Do you do you um for Kissinger uh, specifically? Do you just like watch a bunch of him? And for other, for other roles, how, how do you get the uh the accent down? Same thing. Same thing. Like I was for him because his is so unique. You know, it's, it's and it's it's a different kind of German accent. It's kind of a mix, but it's so far back in his throat and deep and and gritty and. I just watched a lot of the interviews of him from the 60s and 70s. And then, um, and this was the first time really for me um, of having a, a, an opportunity to really work on it a lot because usually I'm, you know, I'm a working actor and I'm a guy that started way later in life doing this. And, you know, generally TV, you get hired, you go in, you do it, and you're done, you go to the next one. It's not like, you know, you go, hey, in three months, you're going to do this role. And, you know, so you can do all this prep. But for this one, I was able to uh, 
just study it hard. Um, it's always been super easy for me, though, to do dialect stuff. I, I mean, I've been like an Irish guy in Sons of Anarchy. I was like a Rhode Island guy in the Mick. I was a Boston guy in American Horror Story. I do tons of Southern guys, you know, East Texas, you know, Mississippi kind of guys. Um, Chicago, I've done them all. And so, you know, it was the, the super challenge was, though, because his was so unique. Um, but I got it down, man. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. It was really fun. Was that something you could do uh, before you got into acting? Like, uh, you know, just for fun, have different uh, dialects? Or is it something you discovered yeah. you could do once you got into acting? When I was a kid, all day long. Um, I remember, see, if, if I backtrack, my dad and, mo- and my mom were both teachers. And uh, my mom's an artist and my dad was a, a coach as well. But my dad, as a kid, he would do a one-man show as Mark Twain. And I mean, my dad was world-class. We lived in Nebraska and Hollywood found my dad in Nebraska in the seventies. And he came out and would do like national commercials for Wells Fargo as Mark Twain. And I mean, that's, he was that good. And so I was around it watching my dad do it. But I remember as a kid, I would be imitating like WC Fields. That one I remember as a little, little kid, but I would just, I could just do it. And maybe because I watched my dad do it with doing his Mark Twain, but I could do it, and um, but I never thought about it, you know. And I used to do a ton too. Like when I first got in the business, you know, I left corporate America. I was working on the stage at the comedy store, and I was in an improv group. And I would be like the guy that they do like those change games that would literally do like fifteen, twenty accents like in two minutes. I mean, I would fly through them. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just fun to do. Yeah. So you mentioned, because I read this about you too, was that you, um, you first were like into sports and you became like an executive and then you left all that to, to pursue acting. Yeah. Like how did that right. all come about? seems like a, you know, an odd thing for most people. Yeah. You know, I mean, for, for me, the deal was, is, um, you know, originally I thought my, what I was going to do was coach and, you know, and my, and follow kind of my dad's footsteps a little bit. But I did it actually at a higher level. I mean, I did it at the uh, at the collegiate level. But some of the athletes I worked with were were world class athletes. I mean, they were like people that won Olympic medals. And so that was sort of the path, you know. When I went from Nebraska to LSU, um, but at the time it was like <laughs> the money just wasn't there uh, for like a really like. And I and I was looking at student loans from undergraduate. And I went, oh man. And so I turned down college jobs. Came out to the Silicon Valley, and I got a job, total fluke. I got the job in the high-tech world. And I just, at that time, I said, man, I just got to get a real job. You know, and, and I was going to take whatever the first damn thing was that came in. And this is right after grad school. And, but I hit in the high-tech world, and I just moved up through it really fast. You know, my undergraduate degree was in science, and then I had a graduate degree like, in writing and advertising. And, and it gave me an opportunity to just, all of a sudden, I was breaking in it, like technology, like optics when it was first coming out. And all of a sudden, I was like one of these guys that got to speak all over the world. I mean, I literally would fly to Barcelona to talk for 10 minutes. And then I'd be like in, you know, Copenhagen. Then I might be in Shanghai. Then I might be in Tokyo. And, and I was doing that, and that was cool for a minute. And I liked it. But towards the end, it was like watching paint dry. Um, it was just the money was good, but I was sitting there and, and we had gotten a job down here in LA. I did a company down here in, in the industry and the optics in, in the tech industry. But man, I was sitting there and there was, there was no fun factor. You know I mean? It was, it was the, the challenge, you know, on the technical side was cool, but just the creative side was nothing. Mm-hmm. And what really kicked it in was Joni got called in to read for um, a sketch improv group that was going to open up this huge comedy show at the comedy store. And at the time, the top, one of the top shows in town was called the Trippin' on Tuesdays, which was like all the top black comics. It was like Jeff comedy jam. And it was in the main stage and all the best guys that were coming through this is like in 06. So it could be like Chris Rock, Chris Tucker, guys like that, you know, Mike Epps, you name it, they were there. And, my wife, who's African-American, she got called in to read for it. She goes, man, you got to go do that. And I said, what? I said, you want me, the guy that looks like Elmer Fudd, to go into the 
comedy show for all black comics and you want me to do it. She goes, no, you'll kill it. And I got cast in that deal. And so I got cast in it and here I was, I'd be up there on the stage. I might be like just riffing on Spike Lee in the front row, you know, and he'd come up to me afterwards and shake my hand. Like, and people go, I can't believe you were riffing on Spike Lee. And I said, what's he going to do? Like not put me in a movie that he hasn't put me in already. (laughs) And he's a New York guy. He doesn't care. And, you know, and it was cool. And one day I was doing like fake spoken word and somebody gave us a topic and I'm just doing this thing and, and it got played on the radio and stuff. But anyway, when I'm doing it, this guy afterwards comes up to me and he goes, you know, you're a really funny white guy. And it was Robin Williams. Oh, and wow. He was, he was watching this from the back of the room. <laughs> and, uh, cause he's saying that cause I mean, I would have been like one of two white people in the whole place. And, right. um, and he came up on the stage. And I'll never forget, he ripped it. He ripped it. We had, there's a band up there, and he turns around, had him do a reggae beat. He did like a freestyle deal for 10 minutes and killed it. And the thing I always remember about him was when he was off the stage, totally introverted, withdrawn. Like he didn't want to be noticed. Like he was watching us from way in the back. He wasn't trying to be noticed. Mm-hmm. You know, like some guys, if Justin Bieber would have been there, he would have walked up in front of everybody, turned around, make sure everybody knew it was him, and sat down in the front row and made all kinds of noise. Where mm-hmm. – Robin Williams had been way in the back just to watch guys work. And, and I always took that away from him. But at that same time, that's when it's click in my mind. Like I felt like, man, I got to give this a shot. And I told the CEO and he was one of those, you know, Harvard, you know, MBA kind of guys. Mm-hmm. He was looking like, what the hell? You're like, 40, what are you <laughs> thinking? And I was literally flying to Japan. I was going there. We were uh, the company I was with, which was publicly traded, was acquiring a company out of Taiwan, and they were flying me where I was doing due diligence. I was literally in Thailand. I'd be in Taiwan. I was in Japan, visiting with all these huge customers to validate this acquisition. And then, can you imagine? That's what I'm doing in the day, and at the night, I'm on the com- <laughs> the company store <laughs> doing this insane stuff. So they don't even match up at all, right? Right. And I came back to Japan. I told the guy, I said, look. I got to give it a shot, man. I said, cause I can always do with this stuff. And, 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 he, and, and I, so I, I set up like a, for the rest of the year, I did like a, uh, kind of a consulting deal with them. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I went out and I'm telling you, I took two formal classes for camera work because I was always comfortable on the stage. And I took one with uh, Wendy Davis and she would go on to become the, one of the stars of army wives. And she's in the series now. And it was like a master class. Then I took one with John Swanbeck. And Swanbeck had some brilliant stuff. And he was um, the guy that directed The Big Kahuna with Danny DeVito and, and Kevin Spacey. And, mm-hmm. and then I did Leslie Kahn comedy intensive class. Two so, weeks, a little bit. I took that stuff just to get an idea. Two mm-hmm. months later, I'm booking White Lightning. And I'm being flown to Europe to play a redneck killer. And that premiered <laughs> at Sundance in Oldham. So here I was, this dude. 46 years old, coming out of high tech. Two months later, I'm doing a movie. This is in 07. The premieres in 09. Um, yeah. And that started the long string of me playing a lot of bad guys, generally. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like probably TV and film credits are over 75. Probably if you count all the commercials and video games and stuff, I'm like around 90 in wow. 10 years. Wow. Um, so... So I was one of those guys, I just, I literally stepped out in faith. And the one thing I always remember, I called my dad, and this is my dad was still alive. And I said, dad, I'm going to, I've got to give this a shot. And he said, like a dad does, he goes, I got two questions for you. One, are you good enough to do it? And two, can you do it and make a living doing it? And you know, I know how a dad would do it, you know? And, and I said, yeah, and I have been. Um, And Joni has always said one thing I always steal it from her. And she says, you know, you're never too old to be what you want to be um, or do what you want to do. And I mean, obviously, you know, I can't be a pro football player. That's that window was never open, but, but you know, there's some stuff you physically can't do, but, and, and normally you never think about breaking into the acting when I did, I mean, you normally, you just don't, you know what I mean? Cause when I go to auditions, when I walk in the audition, everybody in the audition, you recognize because if they're in my age category and they're doing it, they've probably been out here for 30 years. And, you know, and they've survived, and that's why they're still doing it. 
so I was always marketed as the new older guy because I was the guy coming in like the new guy that might be 50. Uh, but these guys, guys have been doing it. You know, they might be like have been the series in the in the nineties or something or early two thousand. Mm-hmm. So, but that's that's how it got to where I was. And um, but you know, I wrote my first song on a guitar when I was ten. I wrote my first play when I was thirteen. I just didn't know that's what I was going to be doing for a living forty years later. Yeah. So, um, you, you know, your dad asked you if uh, if you're good enough to do it. So. Did you feel like it was something you were a natural at? Did you feel like you were a good actor right away? Yeah. I mean, because I know, like, as a kid, you know, honestly, as a kid, um, when my dad would have been teaching and coaching in these small schools, he would always been the one that had been, like, the when they put the plays up at high schools, right? And so if there had been musicals or something, and and he had, like, a drama minor in college, too, but, you know, they'd be put in a place. If they needed kids in a play, well, it'd be Ron Bolville's kids, right? You know, you know. And so, by default, you're kind of around the stage and stuff like that. And um, but I never really thought. I mean, at the time, I, I I never thought about it. But I do know that as I as as I progressed through stuff, I was always comfortable. I was always comfortable up there like that. Um, and even before joining, I when we first came down to L.A. in '02, you know, we started our own indie record label. And we put out two albums of stuff that I'd written that, you know, we had stuff that hit number one on the indie top 50 chart and we got picked up distribution. And I was starting to do that when I was like 39. And, but we, we might be in some place where, I'm, where we're singing and there might be 5,000 people, 10,000 and my heart rate wouldn't go up a beat. That's where I was comfortable. Mm-hmm. If you put me in a freaking room with 10 people and I didn't know any of them and we had to talk about tires or, corn prices or you know what paint chips you know oh i couldn't do it because if i don't know you like that i'm going (laughs) but something like it's weird like it's even up to this day man the one thing that's up close to the collegiate athletics because that was such a rush Mm -hmm. you know man you compete at that high level and and you and you know you get some athletes out there i mean they have it's just them against the other people there's there's nothing and 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 you might have a pack and there's that pressure and acting in some ways is a lot like that. You know, you're up there on the set and, you know, there might be a hundred people staring at you, right? And, and time's money. And especially if you're in Vice and you're sitting there and, and you're across the table, you're working with this Christian Bell and Steve Carell. Yeah. And the director's at it. Okay, you better not crap it down your leg, <laughs> you know? So, you know what I mean? So, I, I like, and I'm telling you, for me, like, I love... I loved when I was at Nebraska, like, oh, and I'll always be like a long-time Nebraska football fan because I grew up there, and that's a religion in Nebraska. But there's something about being in a stadium, and there's, to me, there's something about when you walk on a freaking studio lot. I mean, if you told me that I could go to Paramount Studios and, and make just enough money to survive, but I could do it till the day I drop dead, I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I am freaking doing it. That's, you know what I mean? There's something about it for me that mm-hmm. just, man. It's my Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. Besides, besides a similar rush, is there anything um, from your uh, background in sports that does uh, help you in acting or in show business at all? Well, I mean, I think the thing is, like, from the athletics world and even in the high-tech world, in the high-tech world, you know, like in, in L.A., you got super talented people who are creative. In the Silicon Valley, you got super talented people who are creative, but it's a dip, they're, like, highly technical. I mean – it's a different kind of a thing. You know, they're creating like a, a MacBook pro and somebody else is creating Mac, you know, Macbeth on the stage. Um, but it's different sides of the brains, but it's, they're kind of operating very similarly. And, um, I think for me, it was always more of, um, the expectation of excellence is probably the best thing. I mean, I felt like when I was coaching, especially at LSU, we won a bunch of national titles and, there was just something about that preparation when you went out there that you knew you were going to do your best. And in the Silicon Valley, I felt always comfortable, man, that when I, when I was really into that world, you know, man, I was usually dealing with like scientists and, you know, PhD guys and physicists and, and I could hang with them. And, um, but that was preparation. It's the same thing I think with acting. I feel there's, there's that level of confidence, but you also got to be, um, not afraid to fail either, you know, and, and that means you got to give it your best. And, you know, if somebody's better, then somebody's better. 
The only, the biggest, the, the, the toughest thing though, the toughest by far is in like, let's say track and field, it's totally subjective. It's either you ran faster than the other people or you did. Mm-hmm. There's no beauty contest point, none. Silicon Valley, whoever's got the best idea and that's what people moves forward and, you know, like a MacBook Pro or something like that. But in acting, hell, I could be the best guy in an audition. But maybe the director's cousin's looking for a role. Or maybe I remind him of the guy that took his girlfriend in college. Or, <laughs> um, or you know what, I'm not related to the casting director. Because that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So that's the only thing that's kind of, that is the only disconnect. You could be the best on the planet in the acting world. But they may go, you know what, well, it's just like the movie Vice. In my mind, I thought, hey, man, I was as good as anybody probably read for it or better. But they might go get Christopher Waltz, and I can't all of a sudden sit there and argue with the producers, and they go, well, we can go get an Oscar winner and put him in it, or we can put Kirk Folville in it. <laughs> We're going with Christopher Waltz, you know I mean? Right. Because that's the business side of it. So that's the only thing that's different, man. Um, and that's why I think in L.A., there's a lot of actors, you know, that kind of lose it not a lot but you know when you always read about the one where somebody turns into a basket case and you're wondering mm-hmm. what the hell how could and i think it's because it's it's the land of rejection what we do it's mm-hmm. the land of no and um and then you get those calls you know where you get something unless you're some super a-lister you know like a good friend of ours like viola davis i mean viola davis 10 years ago was pretty much unknown in la even though she was a tony winner and even though you know she had had already done um oh i can't do the movie right now with meryl street but when she already been nominated but she was still kind of and she you know she was still called in audition to be her and taraji henson and a couple other people reading for the same stuff mm-hmm. and it wasn't like all of a sudden she was like hey you want this i mean she was as good as she is she was always having to go prove herself every time until like you know the last few years when how to get away with murder and the health and all that you know, now people are lined up just to get her in stuff. But, um, and I've always respected her and her husband, Julius Tennant, because their work ethic is they stay grounded, man. You know, they don't, they don't let the highs get them too high, the lows get them too low, and they don't, they don't forget where they come from, and they're just focused on where they're at now and, and what they can do to, to make things better, man. And that's just what I'm trying to do, and that's what my wife is trying to do as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what age do you play uh, Kissinger in Vice? Uh, it'd be the 1960-1970 version. So, it's probably at that time, Kissinger was probably like 50s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's what it'd been like there. It's right, you know, like when, when Ford came in uh, mm-hmm. for his, his term and when Nixon got was out. And, and Ford filled in, and then um, uh, and then I I come in with well I was already there, and then um, you know Cheney and Rumsfeld did the power play and kind of pushed out. They pushed out some of the you know the the power that um, Kissinger had at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, what were those guys like to to work with to act with? I oh, mean I tell you what it's like it's you know it was surreal. I mean honestly it was surreal because you sit there. And like I said, I've been around, I mean, I've been around some heavy hitting people and some of them that I know legitimately like really good friends. So it's mm-hmm. not like you drop your jaw drops and you see them for the first time. Cause you, you know, you've been around some people like that, but still I'm up there on the set and I'm the first guy getting uh, mic'd up. Then I see Bill Clapp come in. He just won an Emmy and he's playing for it. Here comes Steve Carell and you're just, your mind's kind of blown away. And then here comes Christian Bell. And, you know, he, he put on all that weight to play the role. <laughs> and he, he comes up and he introduces himself to me like, I don't know who he is. But I thought that was really cool that he did yeah. it, you know, because he didn't have to. You know, mm-hmm. He could just walk by and just look at me and go, like, you know, he could, you know, he could look at me and say, just don't screw it up, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was cool, you know, because, you know, you, you'll hear stories about Christian Bell, like he could be tough, and there's always those famous videos of him losing it on the set. I think it was Batman or whatever. And, yeah, but the Terminator. He, he was the nicest guy. I mean, he just, you know, and it was just, you know, you're freaking, you're walking on there at Sony. They got a lot 
they got a stage that's completely the West Wing. You're walking in there, and you're walking into the freaking Oval Office. Next to it is the Chief of Staff, the Secretary of State's office, the details down the hallway, the pictures, everything. You're literally in the, in the White House. And, you know, you're sitting there, and they're setting up the scene. The first time they say action, you know, the coverage is on Christian. And for a nanosecond, I'm looking at him going, God, he's good. You know, for <laughs> I'm going, I have the next line. I need to be present. You know, I don't, I don't want it to have to be like, cut. Uh, what are you doing, Kirk? Uh, I was watching Christian kill it. <laughs> so that was the thing, man. Just the first freaking take. He's going to profile me. And all of a sudden, he just is freaking Dick Cheney. Mm -hmm. Everything. Every freaking thing. Every nuance. And he's eyeballing me and in the scene. And then we're going at it. And so it was amazing. The challenge was, here we, we were doing a serious scene. And then Adam had us extend the scene where he had his improv on the back end. And I can improv with anybody, but to improv as Kissinger is hard. Because, you know, you got to stay in the mode of Kissinger, do that hard accent, but then improv whatever comes out of the room. Mm -hmm. And so then we were doing we were doing that. And that came out. That was really good. And then Adam, Adam, all of a sudden, he, he wasn't in the room. He was like in a video village. And normally, you know, with directors for film, they're usually like right there. Generally for films, they're literally like, you know, you're shooting and they're like 10 feet away. Sometimes, and mostly for TV, it's the same thing. Every once in a while, there may be like a video village that's a little bit further away where they're watching monitors. But it's for film, I've never seen ever a director not be right on the set. He might be watching monitors, but he's right there. But he wasn't even in the same room. And all of a sudden, you'd hear like a, uh, his voice come over the speakers, and you go, hey, um, Adam, say this instead. And it would be something insanely funny. <laughs> and Bell would start laughing, and then he'd get it in his head, and then he'd get through it. But then he'd go, okay, Kirk, you, I want you to just freaking just improv off of whatever he says. Whatever he says, you just improv off it. And then I got and then I got Steve Carell right there too, who's an improv king. <laughs> yeah. And so we we were doing I mean crazy stuff. And it was funnier than hell. I mean crazy stuff. And I never forget when I got home, I told Joni says, I have no idea what they're gonna do with the scene. Because the scene is this for real serious scene. But then what we just did as an alternative is just insanely funny. I have no idea. I go, maybe for the Blu-ray, like these bonus scenes, like these wild outtakes, the Kissinger going at it with these guys over insane premises. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, you'll see what shows up in the movie. Um, but, but I thought that was wild because that was, that's where I really felt that, man, I belonged at that, that level for that mm -hmm. because it was so fun because I'm giving and taking as good as it's coming. And, mm -hmm. and you know, you got Carell there. And, you know, it's just, I was going off. And when I was doing some of the stuff I was doing, Bill Clapp is playing President Ford. And when both, they had two cameras on me, and both cameras are on each side of um, Christian Bell. So it was like camera, Bell, camera, Steve Carell. And on the other side of the president is a president on his side of the desk, and I'm way on the other side of the desk by myself. Cameras are on me. But when I started riffing off whatever Bell said, you saw Bill clap. I could see him, and the, and the focus is on me, so it had been maybe you got some dirty focus in. I saw him leaning back because I could see him shaking. He was trying not to laugh out loud. He was, like, shaking and moving out of the frame. <laughs> and, and I could see freaking um, Christian Bell's eyes. His eyes were starting to glisten because I was going for it. Where he's staying, the cameras are on me, but still he's, he has to stay dead on focus because the cameras right beside him would have picked it up, you know. And, and when we got done, I just, I always remember, um, Pharrell comes up and he goes, what do you do? Like a one man show of Kissinger, <laughs> which I probably should do. <laughs> and then, and then Bill and I just high five each other. Cause I said, man, I said, that was so crazy. I said, and when you all of a sudden are looking at me, cause now I'm making dead eye contact with him. Now the camera's off him. He's still standing character, but at the same time too, what I'm react, what I'm saying is so insane based on what he said, you know, I could see that in his eyes, he's doing everything he can not to lose it, you know, to, to screw up a take. And, uh, yeah. but I tell you what, man, and, and you know what it's like, 
it's like those people that are golfers. Some people are like those weekend golfers and they hit like 120 or they hit 100. And they always keep coming back because there'll be two shots of the 100 that are shot like Tiger Woods or some great golfer would hit. And that's why you keep coming back. You're going, you know what? I had one shot that looked like it would be in the PGA. The other 120 looked like the hack. But there was one shot that made me feel like I belonged. And that was one of those roles where you do it. And if you never did another one, you'd be cool. But, I mean, obviously I do it for a living. So, I, I mean, I've been working a bunch since then. Mm-hmm. But, um, man, it's one of those ones that's way up there at the top, you know? Yeah. It's <laughs> have you seen the finished movie yet? Yeah, I have. I have. And um, it's good. And uh, it's really good. And it's, you know, like you saw, it was the, it was the highest nominated movie for the golden globes and it was had a, a, a ton of nominations for the uh was it the critics choice it just came out today like critics Cho- both of those golden globes and the critics choice have one of the ones that spices in is for best ensemble mm-hmm. um but both of them like best picture writing directing you know um adams and you know for adam mckay for those christian bell amy adams um you go down the line and so that's pretty cool. Um, I, I uh, the premiere's tomorrow, you know, so I'll be going to the premiere, which will be really exciting. Um, so they have that, and then it comes out on Christmas Day. So yeah, I've seen it, and I was curious to see what it was going to look like. <clears throat> I had no idea what's going to show up in it, and I'm not going to give away anything, but you'll see. <laughs> it's yeah. good. All right, man. Yeah, I'm looking for. I'm looking forward to it. The, the trailers definitely look great. Yeah, and you can't and you can't beat the cast. It's unbelievable. I mean, mm-hmm. just it's unbelievable who are in it. And you start even looking at like you just look at the cast list on IMDb and just go down the line. You're going, holy crap! I mean, because I think people wanted to be in it, and um, well, they did. But you just see like you just going down it like that list, you know, and. And it is surreal. You know, it's surreal to be sitting there in freaking hair and makeup, and it would take them like three and a half hours to turn me into Kissinger. You know, you might be in there, and there's like Amy Adams. You know, the one guy I didn't get to see, we never worked at the same time. I would have loved to have seen uh, Sam Rockwell because I love him, you know. Um, but, man, it just – it was one of those really cool ones yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sam Rockwell's awesome. Uh, I think uh, – not that he needs a plug or anything, but – uh, Moon, I think, is uh, one of the most uh, underrated uh, science fiction movies. It's fantastic. I gotta see that one, man. Because I, 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 remember, you ever seen him in Collinsworth? You ever see that one? I don't think so. Him and Bill Macy, they're like these, <laughs> just these. It's just, Collinwood. It's Collinwood. Um, mm-hmm. But it just is. It's like a train wreck. These guys try to do a robbery, and it's like. They're all like grifters and stuff, and it's just a train wreck. But he, the movie that those guys, their their robbery goes to shit. But he is, um, I love, you know, he's to me he's brilliant. Like even Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, Galaxy Quest. Right. He was in that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. is, do you prefer to do like a comedy or drama or to you is it both the same thing, both acting? Both, but you know what though? I, I seem like I get most of my work on the dramatic side because um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm typecast usually as a bad guy and as a redneck. So I played in my, you know, I played that. Lately, I've been playing like, like I just did a deal. It's out on Shutter.com, the Dead Wax, where I'm, I play like a guy has a little bit of a Ted Kaczynski vibe, but it's like a totally broken, psychotic break guy out in the woods, and it's a supernatural thing. And man, it was like a long five, six minutes scene of me just freaking breaking down and i did that very similar something kind of like that in chance last year on hulu and and in a film called uh a crooked somebody so lately i've been doing some ones where the guys have like these really emotional kind of upheaval as opposed to just playing like the straight up bad guy and i played those guys all day long and um mm-hmm. uh and but you know what it'd be fun to get really do more comedic stuff because the thing was funny at the rap party for the movie for Vice, adam mckay comes up to me and he goes man i didn't know you were so funny 
Especially just because the scene wasn't supposed to be funny until <laughs> okay. you said, you know, if I'd have been trying to make that scene funny, I would have never been hired. But the minute he did that, and I hope that translates into more work with him on some Will Ferrell thing or something. Um, yeah. Yeah, I want to do some more of the, the comedic stuff because that's where I got my start. It was at the mm-hmm. comedy store. But my body of work mostly is, you know, is generally playing a lot of bad guys. It's kind of, I always joke too, my wife and I have always had like season passes to Disneyland. Mm-hmm. And we'll just get that wild hair, you know, if it's like a slow day, let's just run up there because it's not that far away do a couple of rides, come home, or just go hang out. And, but I'll tell her, she goes, no, nah, I don't want to go, you go. And I said, I can't go to Rick and Disneyland by myself. I mean, look how I look. I get hired to play weirdos. I can't be standing <laughs> in the Peter Pan line by myself. Security's going to show up. They're going to go, why is this middle-aged white guy standing in the Peter Pan line? I go, you got to be with me. Otherwise, it looks like, who's the creepy guy? <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's like... But, but the thing is, you know, for Hollywood, I embrace those roles. I don't freaking fight it. You know, some guys get caught up where they're going, no, nah, man, I am not doing that. I just want to be playing whatever. And I'm going to say, well, just stay in line, you know, just hope that, and hopefully your turn will come up for that kind of stuff. Me, I'm just more interested in, um, you know, if, if they want me to play a bad guy, I'm going to play a bad guy. I'm going to play him as good as I can, you know, it, uh, just like it's funny though because there's those i just thought of the other one like you know i was telling you about chance i was like this broken kind of homeless guy dead wax i was like this guy out in the woods who's broken nut job um but like uh, ncis tomorrow i'm in the episode of ncis tomorrow playing a homeless veteran and oh, wow. uh, because it gives you then it's more like the range so you look like you'd be the scary dude but i know it's like it's like the guy's got the emotional thing behind him so, you know, people might be looking at him on the street and go, oh, that guy's a nut job. Then you hear the guy where he's coming from, and, and it's a different deal. So it's fun to play that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, I, I, trust me, I would love to be in a Zach Galifianakis movie with those guys doing Hangover 5. I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> yeah. So uh, when yeah. you do one of those, uh, an, uh, an established show like that, and, it, you know, I'm sure the, the regular crew and cast, everyone knows each other. What's that experience like? You know, like I say, like for NCIS, I thought it was so cool. I'm there for the table read. And so you have the table read, and, you know, that's where everybody's kind of, you know, they get the script, and the, the whole cast is there, and the, the director and the producers, and there's, you know, some network people there. And they're just hearing, out the, they're hearing the words for the first time out loud, and they're really just running through them. And it's going to be like probably start filming like two days. And generally when you're doing it, they're, they're still working on the episode that, that from before. Like they maybe got like, a day to wrap that up, but they're just running through the lines. And But when these guys came in, all those guys that are the leads on that show, Mark, Carmen, all of them, they're going down the road and they're shaking hands and welcoming all the people that are just like for that episode. And I thought that was really cool. You know, they didn't have to do that. They're like the stars. They've been on the show for a thousand years. He could have sat down and said, let's just read this because I got to go film after this. They went all the way down the road going, hey, I'm Mark Harmon. Welcome to the show. Glad to see you here. And I thought that was so cool. Um, I always remember uh, Ron Perlman on Sons of Anarchy doing the same thing. And it always was amazing to me. He came out, Ron Perl, and we're out there, you know, shooting. And here's all the, you know, the badasses from Sons of Anarchy. Mm-hmm. He's even shaking hands with the background guys. And I told him, I said at lunch, I said, I thought it was so cool how you just you went around he go, to do that. And he says, well, who shouldn't, who wouldn't, who doesn't have time to do that? Why wouldn't you do that? And I thought that was a cool attitude. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I generally, you know, I mean, the, of course, you know, the, the main people, they've got a built history and a chemistry and a family. And you're sort of like the outsider coming in to service the thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I get that. But I mean, you know, but they, you know, they, they, they're usually, the, the, they're usually always pretty cool about it, you know, and. Um, I mean, the dream scenario would be, you know, to be on a show like that where you're like a recurring, well, not a recurring, like you're a series regular on something where you're there all the time. Because mm-hmm. I love being on the set. You know, my wife's been fortunate. She she recurs on Bosch, you know, Amazon's hit show. And mm-hmm. they just wrapped season five and season six already got picked up. Um, and season five didn't even come out till 2019. Season six is 2020. So they won't even start shooting that for like another year. But she's been in it all five years. 
mm-hmm. we just had the rap party for that this last week. And it's so cool because, you know, you're coming in. And I was on the show the first season in the pilot. I, I played the guy's, the lead character. I played his uber-violent foster father when he was a kid in flashbacks. Mm-hmm. And but, but it's amazing, you know, they all go there. and It's like an extended family. and Because um, everybody's got the same goal, you know. They're all trying to do as good as they can, you know, to make it as good as they can, you know. And, and everybody has good days and bad days. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're just trying to do as good as you can, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never had I've never had one where you walk in there where everybody's like you know every, you know there's there'll be an occasional person who's kind of a jerk right but no but it's rare mm-hmm. I maybe I, I maybe think of one guy one time I was kind of surprised that he wasn't like the big main he was one of the main guys in the show but it was I don't know what it was but um, everybody else man it's the same thing they're all they all came out here and I guarantee all of them came out here probably living with 45 roommates till they made it, you know, and, and mm-hmm. doing whatever it took and waiting tables or whatever it is that they were doing, you know? So I think most people really truly appreciate when they got the opportunity. Cause I mean, it's hard to get really mm-hmm. is. See, so you mentioned that shows on, on Amazon Bosch and then another show was on Hulu and dead wax is on shutter. Um, with the rise of all the, uh, you know, just you have basic cable shows and now the rise of uh, streaming uh, networks, how does that affect your career? There's pluses and minuses. The plus is it puts out, there's a lot more material coming out now. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me on the writing side, I really need to get my budding gear on my writing side. Cause that's where I feel that's where I really, it, I mean, that's where I really feel my strength is. Um, but in terms of content, it's like the golden age of television, really. Because when you count all the different mediums, the streaming stuff, not just, like you said, the Hulus and the Amazons and the Netflix, but, I mean, it goes down like Apple, YouTube, anybody's got it. It seems like they've got, like, these viable channels with really, really top talented people attached to projects now. Mm -hmm. So as far as an actor, I think it opens up a lot more opportunity. I mean, it really does. The the only – the trade-off is, is, you know, you make money – on residuals you know you get paid when you you go work on something and then as it airs you get residuals and the so like if it's a major network cbs abc nbc and fox well traditionally you know you're on shows like that the residuals are really pretty good the Mm -hmm. streaming ones are not because it's so new that that's the sort of the trade-off a little bit in terms of um career-wise in terms of financial um payout Mm-hmm. But in terms of opportunity, um, there's there's just so much now, man. So it's not just like you know four networks. It's mm-hmm. like it's so many, um, and and they've come up such big. I mean, I just watched Mowgli on Netflix yesterday. You know, I did too, actually. Hardly enough. And yeah. I thought, and you think of all the people. You know, you look at who did all the voices, and your jaw drops. Yeah, I mean, Christian Bell's in there. You know, all those top British actors. And, you know, if you had told me like five years ago, said, oh, yeah, Netflix is going to be doing their own original stuff, you know, I probably would have thought it's going to be terrible. <laughs> and it's like it's like all the top people. Yeah. And it's You know, it's, you just look at, you know, you look at like that show, was it the Kaminsky Method, the one with. Oh, Mal yeah. Like, yeah. Douglas, it's just mind blowing. You got these guys or these A-list actors that probably if you had told them like five years ago to do some streaming network thing, they would have. Well, even t- they would they would never done it, mm-hmm. but now you've got these absolute studs coming in to do it, and I think the top level people, what they like about it, is they can literally probably go in and make the same amount of money if they're doing a movie that would take them forever, or come in and go, okay, let's do one of those limited series, eight episode, ten episode thing, mm-hmm. knock it out like in a couple months, and make as much money as I would if I was working six months on something else, and be able to do more of those, mm-hmm. and you know what I mean, so you're starting to get these people who you normally never saw on anything but the big screen. Yeah. Now they're on these, these the Amazons and the Hulus and you name it. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, they, they our vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Martin Scorsese, the Irishman is going, is going to Netflix. And I mean, it's got, you know, De Niro and Al Pacino and you know Martin Scorsese. It's like, wow, that's like, uh, I never expected, you know, that to be on Netflix. 
you know, originally. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Like, I, when I saw that Mowgli, I honestly thought that was going to, you know, I thought that was like a theatrical release. And then I realized, I went, wait, that's on Netflix? And I liked it. I watched it. You know, I, I liked it a lot. And uh, I just was amazing. You know, I'm going, holy crap. Look, you know they had to spend a ton of money for the um, animation and the CGI oh, yeah. and everything like that. It's like yeah. watching kind of like an avatar live, you know, and mm-hmm. but, you know that wasn't like you know some low budget green screen with you know no. with a couple of stars. And that was yeah. yeah, I was amazed. Yeah, I I thought I even saw a trailer for it at the theater. I think last year, earlier this year. So I was surprised when I saw it uh, on Netflix. You know, made for Netflix. Yeah, I think I saw it like during um, it might have been during one of the football games this year. Where it's kind of like a teaser trailer, and I went, "Oh man, that looks so good." Yeah, and I remember sitting there going, "I'm going." Comes out, and I went, "Wait, that's on Netflix?" Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. We said about Golden Age of uh, TV. I think uh, in the last, ever since like kind of Sopranos and on, there's been uh, so many great series. A lot of series are better than the movies, or just as good as the movies. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, because the thing is, too. Remember how there was a transition where. Networks are networks are handcuffed in terms of what they can say, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. a there's a standard. You say, okay, you can say this and you can show this, and that's it. Period. And then the cable guys came in, like FX and those guys. Remember how they pushed the envelope? There was stuff that they could do that you could do on the mainstream ones. And then now you had HBO and it came out with Sopranos or Game of Thrones and and mm-hmm. all those other people. Well, now they can do whatever level of content for the most part. But now they're just so they can tell maybe even the same story that you might be telling on ABC or CBS, but they can maybe tell it like they can tell it, but not be under the same constraints of like the the network standards or something. And so yeah. it yeah. makes their, their their stuff better. I mean, they, they can tackle stuff that we go, well, we can't say that, can't do this. And um, and I think actors like that, you know. Um, but it's it's an exciting time right now. I think if you're developing content because there's so many avenues. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, granted, there's always stuff that always gets recycled, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, nonstop, but... Um, yeah, not so much TV. Well, I guess there are... So I was just say not so much TV, but like Y5O, and there are shows, but uh, movie-wise, you know, it's uh, you know, just remakes all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what what kind of stuff do you watch uh, when you're not working on on something? You know what's funny because sometimes uh, we'll we'll try to say you know we'll watch just across the board different things just to get a, a sense because you know if you're auditioning for stuff you got to go man we better watch that show just to see what it's like you know sure. like for a minute there I was kind of into like uh, blackish I like grownish I like the spinoff from that uh, I was watching that you know. We'd watch How to Get Away with Murder. We haven't watched it lately. We've just been behind, cause, you know, just to see Viola do her thing. And, um, uh, you know, like on the History Channel, even those guys came up. Remember the, the, the their series, Vikings? Yeah, it's like that's awesome. Of, he was Fords. And yeah. it was so, I mean, that's another one thing. You know, you think like the History Channel, you know, you and I used to watch it to be like, okay, the rise of the Roman Empire. And also now here's this original series, and it's like freaking Game of Thrones meets Sons of Anarchy sort of a deal. And um, But I'll watch, you know, a lot of times, too, just because by the time of the day, you run out of time in the day. So we'll kind of get caught up like on This Is Us. Um, mm-hmm. My wife and I have both been re- reading in that for a mo- number of times. And I would love to do that show. I, lo- I love the writing in This Is Us. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just. The cast is great, but the writing is so complicated how they can, you know, call back and remember stuff and go forward and behind. Um, but I'll watch a lot of times just for just to turn my brain off. It'll be HGTV and it'll be like those shows like buying property in the Caribbean, international <laughs> home. And you'd be looking going, why do we not move to Canaan? And you'd be looking going, look at that, man. Look, that's all it costs to live there in freaking Hungary. We are on it. You know. So a lot of times we'll be able to speed through those kind of shows. I'm going to, you know, where I'm going to the Caribbean, I'll watch like four of them. I'm going, why are we not down there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, uh, you know, wanting to, uh, to write more, what kind of stuff would you like to write? I'm totally wired a hundred percent to write for TV. Cause I write real fast. 
And I mean, I've written a number of pilots. Um, nothing's gone anywhere because I've never really gotten off the ground with like the right team. Part of it's my fault. And but I, I mean, I can write. You could give me a log line, and I guarantee you, I could come back in a week. If it's like for a TV show, I'd have like 52 pages, and it'd be good. Now I know there'd be rewrites and notes and all that, but it would be legitimately total legitimate script where you probably a lot of it would be kept. A lot of it would be kept. Um, and I like, uh, so I love that medium cause I write fast. I like, but I like the feature stuff too. Um, generally I like, it's kind of a fusion. I mean, I've done stuff that you would almost consider a chick flick cause maybe I like some of that mono, emotional contact, but then I've written stuff. that will be like super violent, like action kind of stuff, you know, that would, you know, in that kind of vein, like a lot of stock and smoking barrel almost kind of vibe. Um, mm -hmm. I just like the, the creating stuff. Um, like, I mean, I've helped people. I mean, people sent me scripts that they sold. Where I'll look at it and give it a, a pass for them. You know, like an uncredited pass. Where I'll go give it to me, and I'll just I'll I'll I'll, I'll give you a pass on the script. Like I'll just I'll not like rewrite it, but I'll go through it and mm -hmm. you know drop stuff out, rewrite stuff, and say, hey, use whatever you want. Um, Cause I really like that. I mean, I really, that I love and I, and I love that. Um, and what I need to do is just get off my butt. Honestly, I got stacks of scripts and it's shame on me that, you know, I've been paid to punch up stuff. I've been not paid to punch up stuff. I've written so many things where producers approached me and they go, I think I should do a cop show on like, and then all of a sudden I do create it. And then we go through a meeting and somebody will go, I know what you do. And they'd be pointing to me. I know Kirk wrote it, so I know what he can do. But what can you do? And then the meeting falls apart. <laughs> but um, but I just need to go out and bet on myself on that side. Um, and I've got stuff that is a lot of stuff. And that's probably what I'll probably duck out for the balance of probably December outline another probably TV show. And but this one I won't do. With, I won't bring anybody on or have anybody like bring me into something. I'm just going to just do it and go it that way. Um, I mean, I actually turned down a writing assignment this year, a paid one, because it was one of those ones, you know, where you meet somebody and you know, everything about them is wrong. I mean, like everything. And I mean, everything. <laughs> and the middleman that brought me in, I just couldn't believe he brought me in a meeting with the guy. And it would, it would have been like, if I was filming a scene, that would be like one of those scenes with a stereotypical producer of Hollywood, like the worst case scenario one. Uh -huh. was that guy and I couldn't believe I'm in the room with this guy and I and the guy was such a jerk and, and he was late he was high everything you think of that would be a checklist of, to immediately leave and I, I'll never forget it the guy even left the room and trotted out a woman brought her in the room I'm going what is that for <laughs> like <laughs> That's that's the girl you want to make a star. I mean, why are you? Sh what, what I don't. What what? And you know, it looked just like chick just got off working the pole, and it was like, what the hell? <laughs> and I just said, I'm out. I mean, I didn't say like I just got up, so I told the guy, nah. And so I just gave him like a I I I gave him a quote for what I would what they'd have to pay me to do it. Uh -huh. What I was way 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 over based on what their budget was, and that was my way of saying no. Mm -hmm. And then they still came back and wanted me to do it, but they want he wanted a writing credit with me, and I thought I've never put my name on a piece of paper with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> he just looked like the guy that you get on the set, and he'd be arrested for harassment in five seconds. You know, <laughs> uh -huh. it, it was. I was like, no, I ain't doing that. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. But uh, so, but that's on me. That's really on me, because. Mm -hmm. That's that's honestly, it, I've written some really really good stuff that I've never really gone out and beaten the bushes with it, and that's my fault. Um, and I can't, you know, part of it is I'll always work enough as an actor, and I do that. It slows that thing down. You know, you be, you know, you're going, oh man, I'm going to go work on this thing. Oh crap, I got to go say this audition because I got to go do that thing tomorrow. Um, but when I do sit down, like I said, I can write pages. I mean, I can write 15, 20 pages of the pop. That's how I usually write, like 10, 15. And I know there's rewrites. But some people, the way they're, the writing process is, 
I might be on page 105 and they're on page four because they're, they're trying to edit and make it perfect as they're going. I said, it's going to take you five years to get it done. I'd rather get it done, let it set, then go back, do reads, take notes, and then start rewriting and cleaning it up and see what works and what doesn't as opposed to, you know, 10 years from now, you're wrapping up your uh, script, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, also you mentioned uh, music earlier. So, uh, what kind of music do you do? Well, you know, like, Joe and I, it's been a long time, but, like, we had, um, did two albums that were, like, it was, I was doing a fusion of funk, gospel, pop, hip-hop. I feel, I fused all this stuff, and it was, I was, just, I guess I was just influenced by so many things. For me, like, growing up, I was, like, uh. I would have been like in a rock and roll. I'd have been into like Southern rock big time. And then all of a sudden, but I was also like funk music. It's weird. I grew up in Nebraska in a farm town and I would have been a guy that would have had Leonard Skinner and Blackfoot and ZZ Top. But I also would have had Grandmaster Flash in like Parliament. I have no idea how, you know, from a farm town, I would have like, you know, Parliament. But then all of a sudden, I was more like really into hip hop big time, like in the '80s. It's crazy, but I was, you know, I've freestyled some rap stuff, but I never went on stage with it. And these guys go, "Man, why aren't you doing that?" And I said, "Don't get me started." <laughs> and but it was there's stuff I had written, I did nothing with, and all of a sudden I kind of did this, like this fusion gospel type stuff with Joni, and. We had song. We had a bunch of songs hit the top five, like top five in, in any top fifty charts, and we got distribution pickup. But I literally, we came out as totally unknown. First album, I'm I'm 39, and I got Tower of Power horn guys with me. I got Earthwind and Fire horn players with me. I got guys that played with Santana. <clears throat> I got the best these BGV singers, background vocal singers that were like the with everybody, all the top people. And we came out, and people were reviewing us. They're going, who are these guys? <laughs> Who's Kirk and Joni Bulbo? Because, you know, CCM Magazine wrote about us. And they said, the guy goes, I've been reviewing albums for 10 years. And he said, these are easily one of the five best indie artists I've ever heard in the decade. And the guy says, this guy puts more hooks and grooves in a single song than most people do in their entire career. Because <clears throat> we were... <clears throat> I would just, I guess it's just from growing up and being influenced on different kinds of styles, you know, mm-hmm. and it, 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 that's what became, it just, I wasn't trying to imitate anybody, but it, it ended up becoming who I was musically. And, um, we probably should be back in the studio doing stuff. Um, and probably will. Um, and I might just do like where I, again, it might be where I just end up writing some songs and just giving the other guys, you know, or women to do. Cool. So, um, what what do you work on currently? Uh, work on currently right now. Um, like I said, I just got done doing. Uh, well, like recently, I was doing like Young Sheldon, and that aired. MCIS airs tomorrow. Um, there's uh, a Kevin Hart thing that's really funny that'll come out next year. Um, I can't say much about it. Kevin keeps, you know, I don't know if that's going to get pushed, but there's a really funny thing I do uh, in the Kevin Hart thing that uh, I know it's, I, I'm, they just haven't announced it, but it will be sometime next year. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that. It's, uh, it's funny. All right. <laughs> well, uh, Vice comes out December 25th, and you said the premiere is yep. uh, this week in uh, L.A., I suppose. Yep. Yep, it's tomorrow night, man. I'm I'm pumped up. Very cool. Well, I appreciate coming on. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the time, you know. Um, you know, Joey and I have been, uh, we're kind of some of the rare cats that jumped out and did this, you know, not when we were like 19 and 20. And mm-hmm. I guess that's the thing is <clears throat> it gives people opportunity to know that you can do, there's some stuff you can do, you know, and you don't have to feel like at 20 that your dreams stop, right? Mm-hmm. or at tw- at 30 or 40 or 50 and and to me it's um it's truly all about pursuing whatever your true passion is you know um and i mean there's stuff you got to do right i mean there's there's 
obligations people have. You know, I, I can't run off and be a circus clown and <laughs> think I'm going to make a. But uh -huh. thing is, is like, I've just been fortunate to go out, step down in faith, and 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 put my head down, and with the attitude like, there is no plan B. This is it, and mm -hmm. this is what we've been doing, man. You know. Yeah. That's very, that's very cool. And uh, by the way, uh, I know you did Kevin Hart's Guide to Black History. So is that how you uh, uh, is that how you met Kevin Hart? And did he like you? And that's no, why actually, no, like with Kevin, <clears throat> this kind of wild was when I was telling you at the beginning, like when I started off in that comedy show at the, at the comedy store, tripping on Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the host of that show would be Kevin Hart. Okay. Sometimes Kevin Hart would be introducing me. <laughs> this is before he really blew up. This is like 2006. Mm -hmm. He had done Soul Plane, and he was on the road. Sometimes, you know, the main host would be there. There'd be there's a few times where Kevin Hart would be introducing me, and um, and we've been we we crossed paths a few times. A really good friend of my wife's married uh, one of Kevin's lead writers, Joey Wells. So we're so. You know, so there, there's a, there's like a, a link of people. Like I don't hang out with Kevin, but if I saw him, I could say, "Hey, what's up?" Kind of a deal. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the one surreal thing. When our friend got married, and her and Joey got married, it was like the all-star comedy show. Because you could imagine, here's Joey Wells, a writer for Kevin Hart, and he's one of those guys that tours with them on all those, you know, all those when they show those live concert. Joey's one of the guys. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? Here's Joey getting married. And at the wedding reception, you got all these comedians lined up to give speeches. So you know it's just going to be a roast of Joey. <laughs> it was like it was like being at a Vegas show. You're sitting at somebody's wedding reception, and here's Kevin Hart and all these known comedians in a line, getting ready to just heat him up. And then they did a big dance off because Joey was like in one of the black fraternities, so they did their thing. And then Kevin had a bunch of guys, <laughs> and they're doing a dance off, but. <laughs> Um, I mean, Kevin's just, you know, he's been able to brand himself and, and be in a million things. Um, you know, and lately he's catching some, he's catching heat, you know, he's just got to, you know, yeah. but he's just, he's just, but he's just, um, it's just amazing what he, what he's done, you know, like just, you know, he's up to, he's, it seems like he's got something out about every two days. I tell you who's <laughs> got a ton of stuff out right now is Steve Carell. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, he's got that beautiful boy, um, of course, Vice. He's got the one coming out, I think it's called Marlin mm -hmm. on Christmas Day as well. And then there's probably 10 other ones I don't know, but he's like in everything. But, uh, and even the music, cause I'm telling you, our music is so just, the, if you stripped out the lyrics, the music, those guys were so good. I mean, holy crap, good. Yeah. I mean, just a side note, I'll never forget, I walk in the studio. And it's with Mick Gillette and Norbert Stasel from Tower of Power coming in. Norbert had scored his stuff. And these guys are stacking it. So, like, Mick Gillette's playing the trumpet, trombone. Uh, and there's another trumpet he plays. And, and, Mick, and then Norbert's playing, like, three different saxes, tenor, alto, and, and the bass one. And you watch these guys play. They put this, they listen to the song. They go, oh, dig your song, man. And then they're flying through this. Like, Stacking it, doing it again, doing it a third time, switching instruments, boom, boom, boom. 30 minutes, these guys are done. My jaw's on the floor. And they're going, I couldn't believe how good they were. And I went, oh, my God. And <laughs> first time we go, an uh, r guy is listening to our stuff from Chicago. And he, there's a whole bunch of people in the room. They're indie artists. He stops and he goes, he's looking. He goes, who did this? I go, it's me. And he's going, man, that sounds like Tower of Power. I'm going, that is Tower of Power. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, it's 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 a uh, it truly is an amazing ride, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. I uh, appreciate coming on. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you. All right, man. Appreciate the time and the anytime, man. Let me know. All right. Very good.
do is 